This is Grounded, a podcast from Michigan Sugar Company. Grounded is intended to explore our history, the tradition that's made us great, and the ideas to drive us into the future. Grounded is hosted by Jim Ruhlman, Michigan Sugar Company Executive Vice President. And now, here's Jim Ruhlman. Welcome back, everyone. We're going to kick off season two today. We've got a nice variety of topics for you uh, this season. If you've got topics, there are people that you think you'd want to hear from. You can send an email to either myself or Elizabeth Taylor, and, and we'll take it into consideration. Today, we're going to talk to one of the most passionate men that I've ever had the pleasure of working with. His drive and his hunger for doing things in the right way is something that I just absolutely love about him. He's been with Michigan Sugar Company for a little over 16 years. He's someone that I've gotten to know really well professionally as well as personally. He's one of those guys that I can share a motivational clip with on the weekend. He's a guy that I can call up any hour of the day and say, hey, Tommy, what do you think about this? It's my pleasure to have on our show today our Director of Ag Operations, Mr. Tommy Bignall. Tommy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. Maybe we can start the podcast by just having yourself paint us a picture of what it looked like to you a couple years ago when you joined the Ag Department. You'd been at Michigan Sugar Company for 14 years or so previous to that. You enter a new role as the Director of Ag Operations. You and I had talked about the role prior to you coming into the Ag Department, but tell me or maybe paint a picture of what was intriguing about it, and what you saw as you came into the department. Okay, so I would say the first thing that struck me when I was approached about possibly going out to ag, I was excited. I was excited about a new challenge. I was excited about a new environment and just the opportunity to learn more things and become more diverse in the things I know about our cooperative and our company. At first, when I come out to ag, I I realized real quick that I didn't know nearly as much as I thought I might have known. <laughs> yeah. So that was a challenge. I had a lot to learn in a very short time to learn it. I come out right during early harvest. So there was a lot to learn. I was very fortunate. I had some incredible incredible people around me, people like Pat Terrell and other guys out in the shop that taught me a lot. I would say coming out, the biggest eye-opener for me from having spent 14 years in a factory is I really thought I knew what ag was all about and I didn't. Yeah. So through the learning process and as you're looking at the landscape of ag and and even myself, I've learned that ag is more than about harvest. It's more about just agronomy. It's a whole year of preparation. And I think you've done a really nice job of putting that into perspective with your team. So Maybe walk us through a, a year in the life of an ag operations director. What does that look like from a seasonal standpoint? And maybe break it down into the four seasons, but it's really a time where an awful lot of planning takes place, a lot of preparation takes place. And then, you know, we've talked about it in the past. It's like planning for a year to play in the Super Bowl. And then in our Super Bowl is harvest. And you get one chance. It's like playing one game a year and you got to make it a damn good one. So maybe talk about your philosophy, how you go about your preparedness. What pieces do you need in place in order to make the Super Bowl a success? 
Yeah, so I would say our four main seasons in ag operations would be one, harvest. Everybody's well aware of harvest and what it all entails, and it's very visible to everybody around. And then we move into beet storage, and then our maintenance phase, which is our spring and summer months, and then late summer we get into our harvest preparation. So I would say my first couple of years as I was learning and growing and trying to decipher what needed to be worked on and what was of our greatest importance and what would propel us into level up for the next season, I kind of come into harvest preparation. It's my opinion that harvest preparation is what initiates the success of harvest. I know my first couple of years out in ag, it's my opinion that we were probably not prepared the way we should have been. We had a lot of last-minute projects, a lot of things going on, just scattering like crazy to make things happen so that we could start harvest. So I would say, you know, in this past couple of years, we've really focused on getting better prepared, that whole process of preparation. There's a lot of things that go into preparation. People think it's maybe just turning on a piler and going, but all the projects we do throughout the summer All the improvements, all those have to be tested out. Capital projects have to be finalized and tested out. And then there's the whole staffing part of Harvest. My first couple of years, we did all the staffing ourselves and, you know, recruited people locally and went through applications and spent hours and hours on the phone and just trying to schedule people and get them in for training. And staffing was a huge, huge, huge endeavor for us. And I, th- I think it hindered our preparation. And then after staffing, there's all kinds of supplies that have to be purchased and ordered and made sure they're here on time and PPE and everything else that's involved and tear tickets and tear bags. And there's a whole slew of things that we got to ensure is here and in here on time. I would say I felt at the time two years ago that our greatest need of focus would be harvest preparation. I think we've done... A fairly good job at getting better at that, and we continue to. We've already started talking about some harvest preparation things that we want to change for next year. So I would say our year really starts with harvest preparation, and then we transition into harvest. Uh, Our harvest is quite intense, as we all know, as our growers know and all of our employees know. Very long days. Our early harvest, our early dig, as we call it, Still very, very taxing on us. Most of our people work 12-hour days. You know, our scales are open from 7 to 5. So we get here at 6 a.m. to get pilers in place and run them and oil them and make sure everything's good to go for the day. And then we're open for 10 hours. And then by the time the trucks get out of the yard, it's 5.15, 5.20 at the end of the day. And then we got some cleanup and a little preparation. So we put a lot of hours in just in early dig. So I really felt the key was to not get to the point of us being completely taxed out before we even get into harvest. And I think my first couple years, we were there. We had endured too much before even getting to harvest. And I think last year when it started, we were at a very good place within our group. Guys felt felt good physically, mentally, emotionally. We were ready for harvest. And that was nice to see. And then from harvest, we transition into beet storage. Beet storage starts really as soon as the first beet hits the ground during permanent piling. And once the beets are all piled, we focus on it 
in-depthly. We walk piles once or twice a week, physically walk them, get up on them, walk around them. And then every other week we get thermal scans to make sure that we're not missing things that might not be evident to the eye. So planes fly over and give us thermal scans and just to make sure that we're doing the right things and not missing stuff. And we continue to do that all season long, all storage season long until the beets are all gone. We're close now and we're probably four to five weeks out from being done with beets. And people might think that we stop doing those things and stop walking piles, but we don't. We continue to walk them till the day they're gone. If we find an area that needs to be addressed, we address it. We've done that a few times this year and we just feel that's the right thing to do to protect this beet crop that we got on the ground. And then from beet storage, we go into maintenance. We do maintenance year-round, obviously, but once the beets are all gone, maintenance becomes our primary focus. And that's the exciting time of the year for us because we get to actually see some of the improvements that we want to make for our growers start to take shape. Tommy, you talk about the maintenance season, and maybe you could give our listeners a little bit of a perspective of how you approach maintenance and and how do you guys know what to focus on first? So one of the things that we really try to do or have tried to do the last couple of years is study harvest. So when I say that, what I'm really meaning is we try to pay attention to the things that are going wrong during harvest. So what we started to do a couple of years ago was all of our guys keep logs and we write down every single thing that goes wrong especially the things that cause problems, mechanical failures, or any, any of that stuff that causes an issue for 5 to 15 minutes or more. And I always refer to those as touches. My guys have probably become sick and tired of me saying touches, but to me, it's the things that pull us away from doing maybe a more serious matter, even if it's just a, a minute thing, but it pulls us away from fixing a different project. We got to fix it. So the last couple of years, we've really focused on touches. Anything that would go wrong, that kind of goes to the top of our list. We've really focused on coming together. I would say when I first come out to ag, every location, every district kind of did their own thing. And we didn't share information, didn't try to streamline things and make it easier for ourselves. So we've really looked at that over the last couple of years. We have monthly maintenance meetings now where we discuss parts and getting quotes on where we can find stuff cheaper and use kind of best practices and try to push them across the board where everybody's doing the best things. And, you know, those things have come from every district. Every district does has done things very well, and every district has had some areas that we've needed to improve on. So we've kind of taken the best practices and kind of pushed them around and tried to implement them across the board. But, you know, we we sit down in December usually and develop a maintenance plan at each location and within each district. I'll sit down with our leaders and our maintenance crews. We get, you know, three or four of our key guys, key mechanics in on that, and we decide what we think needs to be changed and what we think needs to be improved on and discuss it as a group and come up with a plan and and put it into practice. And 
you know, we, we do those maintenance logs. The guys are kind of expected to update them every week, and once a month they come to me, and I, I kind of review them, and then I send them on to you always, Jim, because I want you aware of what we're doing as well. But mm-hmm. to me, maintenance is not always new things. It's just improving on the old things. You know, we've looked at a lot of the things that we have on pilers, like some of our boom drives have two or three stub shafts driving through them and it you know more bearings more chains sprockets all kinds of stuff that can go wrong so we've tried to eliminate all those things you know and go to single drives i look at our cross conveyors some of those have four wheels on some of them old ones four cylinders just a lot of different things that can go wrong we've switched over now and putting single drives on them you got four or five times as many things that can break down and go wrong on some of that older stuff so we've just tried to tweak and improve on what was there. And I hope the growers see it. I hope the growers see things getting better. You've made some enhancements to some of some of your older pilers lately. And a lot of it revolves around bigger trucks. In Seabwing, you changed, I believe it was Piler 4, to allow bigger trucks the ability to dump. Are there some key pieces or some key areas of some of the older pilers that you look at every year and say, this piler is not equipped to handle some of our larger trucks, so we need to change this, that, or another thing? Oh, definitely. There's definitely, the length of pilers is a very big thing. As we all know, trucks are not getting any smaller. They get bigger every single year. A lot of guys are going to doubles and eight axles, and there's just a huge need right now within our co-op to have a bigger piler. So what we've done is we've lengthened some pilers. You mentioned number four in Seaboing Jim. Last year, we cut that one right in half and added 20 foot into the mainframe just to accommodate bigger trucks. Another thing we're looking at is boom lengths. Some of our outstations, we have really small booms, 60 to 70 footers. We've been building booms the last few years and going to 100 foot booms. We have no intentions of building anything smaller than a 100 foot boom just because trucks continue to get bigger. We've had a few incidents over the last few years from booms being small needing to swing way one way, you know, way to the left or way to the right to get the pile width that we need. And when these big trucks get up in there to get their dirt, they're sticking out quite a ways, and we've had a couple that have been touched by booms. So we're looking at making them longer to try to alleviate some of that and just to create a better experience for everybody. Cross conveyors are another big area of the piler that we've really focused on a lot in the last couple years trying to lengthen them out, get trucks a little farther away from the piler, adding 30 inches or so into each one of those just to give drivers a little bit more room. And like I said before, about trying to eliminate components and eliminating things that can break down. But I would say our focus has been on not only reliability, but making the whole harvest experience better for the guys driving the trucks. So let's maybe switch gears a little bit, Tommy. Let's talk a little bit more about pile management. We are through the non-vented piles now. Uh, You mentioned walking piles and making sure, you know, we're addressing any spots and piles that seem a little bit suspect. But can you talk to me a little bit about the attention to ventilation systems and and maybe even the hoop building and, you know, some of the, the technology that you have where one, you need to pay really close attention to make sure sensors and, and so forth are, are active and in the right spots. But, you know, managing piles through our ventilation systems and and maybe even talk about the hoop building and the success that we saw in the hoop building last year. Yeah, so that's interesting. Kind of goes back to the 
best practice thing I mentioned earlier. So seed wing, I would say, has probably been a little bit advanced in the ventilation system process. Had a great guy here for a number of years in Mike Alderson, who he is now our East District Manager. But working with Mike and Jason and the guys in Seabowing, we really felt that being proactive in a ventilation very early on makes a very big difference in long-term storage. So the things you do the first two to three to four weeks of beets being on the ground pays big dividends come February, March timeframe. So we've pushed that best practice out a little bit. I've kind of put Mike in charge of the whole ventilation system, kind of leading that group there, and we've assigned it to electricians at specifically at each location where there's someone that's accountable and responsible for doing it daily. We check temperature probes every single day, monitor that. In the first couple of years I was in ag, it was kind of a maybe a hindsight type of thing where they were on the ground and we watched them, but maybe not to the point we do now. So we've just kind of increased our focus on that. And we, we truly believe that getting these beets cooled down to the right temperature early on and not letting them be hot for three to four weeks pays big dividends. So when I think about, I think about beet storage, a lot of our piling grounds are hindered in our ability to run ventilation early on. Just electrically, there's not enough power available to us to run the piler and the ventilation. So we have to pick and choose and maybe jump between fields from one day to the next or from one night to the next to try to get some runtime on these vents and maybe doing some things that weren't maybe traditionally done by the ag operations group. But we're working on upgrading that electrical. I got a couple of capital projects I want to put in this year. And it's all based on that same thing as having the power to run the ventilation and the piler at every opportunity. That's where we make our money. We strongly believe in the ventilation systems and they got to be running to get the benefit from them. So we've talked a little bit about maintenance. We've talked a little bit about harvest. I want to talk a little bit about some capital projects. We've got some coming up this year. We've got three new pilers that are coming our way and we've got a hoop building. And um, I thought maybe you'd take an opportunity to talk about, you know, the placement of these new pilers, some of the thought process that went into it. And, and then also talk about the hoop building and kind of the thought process that you and I went through when we decided to put the hoop building in Croswell. Obviously, well, there were some options there. We sorted through the pros and cons of the different locations and, and settled on Croswell. But maybe walk through maybe our thought process for the pilers and then the hoop building. So pilers. Last year, our maintenance guys and our leadership spent some time trying to gather information and age our pilers we found that we had a lot of them from the 40s and 50s, put all our pilers together with you know, the best information that we had available as to aging and all those things. And we found out that the average age of our pilers within Michigan Sugar was like a 1966. Over the past 23 years, we've purchased five new pilers. And we went through some changes as you know we became a co-op and other things and there wasn't money available. So there's a reason for all of it. But now we're to the point where we've got some pilers that are in some pretty rough shape and they need to be replaced. So put in capital this year and got three brand new cranksteads coming in. So where we put them, I think we'll start in Bay City. So 
Bay City, our big super piler there on number four, makes the very wide pile. Uh, and just to the south of that field, we use two pilers to make a, a larger pile. And those pilers, one of them always seems to be running. Very rarely are they both running together because one is a little faster than the other. So it, there's some downtime there where, you know, one of them is always catching up to the other one. And then the other part of that is where they meet in the middle there's always a lot of dirt that collects there. So immediately after harvest, we have to go in there and take that center out of there just for storage purposes. So in Bay City, we kind of decided that we would put that new piler there that we're getting with the, talked about boom length a little bit ago. These pilers that we ordered are coming with 120-foot booms. There's not any in the in the country that I'm aware of that have 120-foot booms. And when we kind of just started discussing this last year, we were told that we couldn't do it, but we are. Bernie's redesigned some things at Crankstead and come up with a way to make it work. So we're going to go with 120-foot booms on them. Part of that is, like in Bay City, we want to put that piler there to replace two pilers. So it's got to make a pretty wide pile. Had some engineers out west tell us if we could make this happen or not. All in agreement that we can make it work. So we're going to put the one in Bay City and move the two pilers that are there now to different locations. And then the other piler up number one, that's right by the roadway there as the drivers drive in, that one's going to get replaced. And we're going to shuffle probably three to four pilers around to try to increase throughput on all the pilers, you know, to alleviate some congestion and just make the flow of the yard a little bit better. Then the second piler is going to go to Seaboing. That's going to go over on eight field, one of our very, very long fields that piles the most beets we pile in Seaboing. And like in Bay City, it's probably going to be a five piler move. So we're going to move pilers around based off speed and efficiency to try to get the best pilers in the right place, get our best pilers piling the most beets and in our most critical areas, vent fields and, and such. And then the Third piler is going to go to Croswell. Croswell is going to be in the south field of the new piling grounds, as is the new hoop building. So as we look at the hoop building, we had a lot of discussion and a lot of thought on where this hoop building ends up. The two, I would say, highest contenders were Seaboing and Croswell. We want one in Bay City, but again, it's a power issue and there's not power available there to us to have a hoop building in. So we need to make some adjustments there and upgrade some electrical so that we can possibly get to that point in the future. But for now, it was basically Croswell and Seaboing. Seaboing's done very well the last few years with our hoop building. We've kind of dialed it in and closed up the ends and seen some pretty substantial benefits from having the ends closed up and, and monitoring it like we are. So based off that success, the thought was Seaboing. But then looking at what was there on the piling grounds and obviously when things were put in and piling grounds were built, the thoughts of hoop buildings and bigger pilers weren't in the plan. Now, 15, 20 years later, they are. So there's not enough you know, power available. Transformers got to be changed. Switch gears got to be changed. New eyeline panels got to be brought in. And in Croswell, we got an open canvas. It's a brand new field. The electrical for the Croswell ground is getting put in this year. So it basically gives us an open slate 
to do what we want and do it the way we think needs to be done right from the start. That was one of the factors in putting it in Croswell. We thought we could put it in where we can run the ventilation, run the piler, do all the things that we've kind of learned over the last few years and do it right, right from the start. And it wouldn't cause added expense by needing to upgrade a bunch of stuff. Second part of the equation is the Croswell factory has had substantial upgrades put into it the last few years, and we're starting to see some of that. Slice has gone up. We expect with the improvements made this year, Slice will continue to go up. And the expectation is that Croswell and Seaboing, as far as slice rates in the factory, would be relatively close. So it made sense, you know, with Croswell being right where Seaboing was, okay, that's, it makes sense to put it there. And then I would say lastly, the hoop building's kind of a different monster. Takes a little bit more time and a little bit more knowledge, a little bit more understanding than a traditional event field. And Mike Alderson is now there in the East. So Mike helped us kind of streamline this whole deal and, and get to the right place with the hoop building here in Seaboing and fine tune all the things that needed to happen. So a hoop building's not something that we can just put on an area or a location or, or a leadership team or a maintenance team without having some experience. Huge investment, huge amount of raw materials in there. So the fact that Mike is there and has some experience makes it a, the logical solution. You know, So between having an open canvas, the Croswell factory improving and getting better, and the experience we have there, those were kind of the three determining factors on yeah, let's go there. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that. I, I know we've gotten questions from growers about where and when. I, I guess speaking of when, when are you expecting pilers to be there? When are you expecting the hoop building to start construction? Yeah, so I just had one of them phone calls this morning, actually. Okay. Uh, we expect our first piler to hit ground maybe mid-May. And the second two, we expect to be here no later than July. So we expect the expectation at this point is to be running these new pilers the very first day of early harvest. We want to run them. We want to make sure every bug is figured out and everything is worked out on them and they're, they're clean running machines. In the past, when we've gotten them, we've, it's been late and we didn't get enough test out. That will not happen this year. We will make sure we run enough beats over them so when permanent piling hits, we'll be ready. In the hoop building, we expect... Mid-March, mid-April, that time frame, that 30-day window there, parts and pieces to start showing up. We told them mid-March because we didn't you know, want to be dealing with last-minute beat supplies and all those things. So it's ordered. It's uh, being manufactured you know, right now. And we're thinking mid-April, things should start moving and people should start seeing it going up. Awesome. Let's talk a little bit, Tommy, about your people. And, and when I say your people, I... You know, our, our ag staff, your core group of ag people, you talked a little bit about the seasonal help and, you know, the success that we've had with express services and, and recruiting RVers. But let's maybe talk a little more specifically about the men and women in, you know, in your department who, who you work closely with, who execute your plan, who help put your plans together. How do you go about your leadership with that group? How do you go about your team cohesiveness? How do you, how do you keep them up? How do you keep them, you know, prepared and, and hungry every day? So maybe we can dive into that a little bit. 
Yeah, so our ag operations pillars, when you come and made your mark on ag, Jim, and kind of took it over, you've kind of broken the ag department up into pillars. So our ag operation pillar is made up of basically four supervisors. We got a supervisor at each one of the factory locations. On Seabwing, it would be Ron Bentley. And Carroll, it would be Kevin McKee. Bay City would be Jason Kine. And Croswell, Doug Soule. Those guys spend the majority of their time, other than harvest, at the proper's dealing with the factories with beet supply and getting people in for ventilation and doing all the daily things that need to be done there. And then each district has a manager. So we have two ag operations managers. Robert Buholtz would be the West District manager, uh, and Mike Alderson is our East District manager. I uh, kind of pull double duty on that. I'm the director of ag operations, but I also am the ag operations manager for the central district. We got some pretty diverse guys, different skills, different assets, I guess, that they really bring to the table, different talents. So what we try to do is we try to focus on each other's strengths, not our weaknesses. We're quite different, but very close-knit. So our differences we try to use to strengthen our group as a whole. Robert's really good with uh, machinery and that stuff type of stuff. So he's kind of become our asset manager, and he's helping us stay on track and do all those things. Uh, Kevin McKee is very good administrative-wise, so he's kind of our, our administrative guy. He does all of our maintenance planning and does the spreadsheets and, and all those things to keep us on track. Ron Bentley, he's, his interest is safety, so he's helping us improve on our safety program and and get better at doing the same things across the board as far as safety. And all the guys, we got a, you know, Doug Soul is an engineering background, so he's kind of taken on the continuous improvement. He's helping us get these new cross conveyors and things that we're doing, put on a CAD system so that we have drawings and we have things going forward so we can build them the same across the company and no matter which location they're being built at. You know, and Mike's got the electrical background, so Mike's focusing on the electrical aspects of what we do and, you know, the things we want to try, the technologies we want to move to. An example of that would be an ultrasonic sensor on the end of our booms instead of the old-fashioned paddles and cables. We tested one of them in the east last year, and now this year we're going to have one at each one of the proper locations, and all indications are now that it's going to be successful. And if it does, if it is, we'll implement that, you know, more widespread. But just the whole testing process and what we do, having guys kind of focus on an area helps us become better, you know, eliminates things from falling through the cracks and things just getting away from us. So it's worked really well for us. I think all the guys kind of like it because it gives them the opportunity to be good at something that they're comfortable with. But at the same time, we all got a lot of responsibilities that we share and and things we got to do. It's just part of the job. Yeah. So we got seven, we got seven salaried managers within our pillar and to some that may sound like a lot, a lot of people, but if you consider those seven people manage 14 locations, you know, and during harvest, that's 24 hours a day, seven days a week from start to finish. And at times we got upwards of a thousand people that we're responsible and accountable for. And, you know, we bring in 4.5 
to 5.3 million tons of raw materials in our sugar beets. It's quite an endeavor for seven guys. It's it's a lot to keep track of. Yeah, it is. You know, when I when I look at your team and I I look at the the togetherness of that team, I I think it's a, a testament to your your leadership abilities and your your style and in holding them accountable and and making sure you are taking advantage of best practices. I, I've seen that since you've been here, and I think you do a really good job at it. Tommy, now we're gonna. You know, we've talked about harvest, we've talked about, you know, maintenance, we've talked about some of the capital improvements, but um, maybe we can dive a little bit deeper into, you know, Tommy Bignall. Maybe we can talk about what are the days like where you feel those great pressures? When does it feel heavy? What do you do to get out of them? So maybe let's let's talk about the pressure days and the heavy days, and then we'll we'll go from there. Okay. I would say my heaviest day by far was in the accident we had last fall. You know, I, I've never had a, a day like that. It's one of those things that you never expect and never think it'll happen, and then it does. That was a very, very, very traumatic day for a lot of us, going to affect a lot of us for a long time. A lot of people were affected by it, and that effect's going to be, be with us long term. But that by far was the heaviest day I've felt uh, while at Michigan Sugar. But the pressures, the daily pressures, the ins and outs, the things that make us tick, I, I would say that my greatest pressure is myself. I have expectations and pressures that I put on myself that are probably quite a bit higher than most people would put on me. Most people would probably consider those pressures too much. But I think that's what takes a lot of people, the people that really push to level up and to go to that next level. I think that's in a lot of people. It's definitely one of the things I look for in people daily. It's one of the things I looked for as I kind of built this team. I wanted people that I didn't have to constantly be on, that I could trust that they would be on themselves in such a way that just naturally they would push themselves in our team onward and upward and into the next level. So I'm fortunate enough to have some great people around me that have that same internal type of pressure. But it's not it's not in everybody, but I do believe that it's in great leaders. I think every great leader that's out there has that internal drive and puts that upon themselves. Let's kind of flip the question then from when things feel heavy or when things feel like you're under pressure. Describe the days that are winning days for you. Describe the days when you go home and say, we killed it today. What are those days like? I would say those days would be, you know, one of the days that come come to mind is not this past harvest, the harvest before. We dropped a boom in a gantry off a piler in Verona. I was new to this role. Mike Alderson was new to his role. Once we found that piler was down, we called contractors in and cranes in and worked nearly around the clock, had a 23 and a half hour day that day, but we had that piler up and going the next morning at seven o'clock when growers come across the scale, that piler was ready to pile beets. We had tested it out. We had done everything that we needed to, to ensure that it would run not only that day, but the rest of the season. And it did. And then as soon as the season was over, we ripped it all apart and rebuilt the whole front end of it to make it right for the long term. And those are the days, those are the moments that are exhausting, but 
you know that you did the right thing for the people involved. You know you did the right thing for your growers. You know you did the right thing for the maintenance crew that's worked hard for you all summer and you're there supporting them. You're not at home sleeping in a bed like some some leaders, some people would do. We were right out there with them. We were in the cold. We were in the mess right to the bitter end. And to me, those are the days that I can look back at and I can say, man, that was something. That was a challenge. But I feel the best the best about those kind of days. When you got odds that are just too much and a lot of people would go home and fix it the next day, and we don't. We stay there until it's running. We give 110% to try to get everything done for the growers so that we can move on with harvest. Those are my proudest moments. Well said. You know, you and I, you and I have had a lot of discussions, and, and maybe this year more than, than any other year, you know, about keeping ourselves strong, taking care of ourselves. You got to have good on the inside to show it on the outside. And, you know, we've been through some some training together. You know, our whole group has on how to handle stress and how to how to stay emotionally sound and how to be the best versions of ourselves every day. Can you talk maybe a little bit about, you know, some of that training and some of that preparedness? We talk about preparedness from a the standpoint of having people in place, having pilers ready, but, you know, as individuals, you know, we, we try to be ready too. So could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I think we're kind of referring to harvest and the demands of harvest. So the demands in harvest can be brutal. They're absolutely overwhelming at times for everyone involved, for the growers, for the truck drivers, for us, for the employees, for the temporary labor. Harvest is something unlike anything else. So to me, the first couple of years, we were worn out going into harvest. So for us to be, you know, mentally, emotionally, physically able to have a successful harvest, we needed to get better again at preparation. I think the fact of us knowing where we're at mentally, and, you know, Jim, I attribute a lot of this to you, the training you've gotten us the last couple of years on mental awareness, emotional awareness, and, and where we're at inside of ourselves has helped tremendously. Knowing that, knowing your limits, and, and knowing where you're at, knowing what your stress level is, helps us in, in all aspects of harvest. You know, we've learned over the last couple of years of the effects of not being properly prepared, what it can have on us. In our training, we've learned of knowing where your emotional state is, and you've given us some tools on how to react when we know we're getting there and what to do and walk away. And there's a lot of different things that we've kind of focused on the last few years to make this whole transition of maintenance, preparation, harvest, to kind of have some balance through it all and to know where we're at. So, Tommy, we've talked about the heavy days, the the stress days. We've talked about the winning days. Talk to me about Tommy Bignall and, you know, what's most important to you um, what are your greatest achievements? Uh, what's most important to me is obviously uh, my family. I've been blessed with a wonderful wife and four beautiful children that I do not deserve, but I'm extremely grateful <laughs> for. As far as professional achievements, I've really not been the type of person that sets goals or, or looks at a position and says that's where I want to be. Kind of my focus my entire career has been just coming in today and making today better than yesterday continuous improvement for myself more than anything else, I would say it's probably been my greatest focus 
And if some look at that as an achievement, maybe that's an achievement. I don't know. I've never thought of it as an achievement. I really want to be a better person from day to day. And not only that, but I want to make my team the same way. I want to make my family the same way. If I'm involved in something, I want to make it better. I, you know, I've coached youth uh, in football and baseball and softball. And to me, a, a crowning moment is the end of the season, seeing kids have talents and skills that they didn't have going into the season. Mm-hmm. And I've kind of just carried that on to most of the things in my life. I just I want to gradually get better. I don't want to light the world on fire, but I just want to be better today than I was yesterday. Perfectly said. So what does it mean to you to, you know, as you look at your career here at Michigan Sugar Company, you know, working for a grower cooperative, describe what that means to you. So for me, uh, Michigan Sugar, it's not a company. It's not a cooperative. It's a community. I grew up here in Seabowing, graduated from USA Schools. What we do here it's not only about me or my family. It's way bigger than that. It's way bigger than Michigan Sugar Company. It's about the people that I went to school with. It's about the guys I grew up with. It's the about the guys I played football with that are now running their own farms that were handed down to them. It's about the generations of employees that have worked within Michigan Sugar's walls of the factory. It's about the generations of growers that have planted seed year after year after year to make this co-op successful. A hundred plus years of people that live right here and and do the same things we're doing today have made it through the hard times and enjoyed and celebrated the successful times. And that's what it is to me. It's about a community of people coming together, doing the right thing for the things that enhance and make the community better and Michigan Sugar is one of those things. Michigan Sugar is very far reaching. You know, just about every kid that my kids have friends, you know, at school, all the all the kids that they're friends with, in some way they're touched by Michigan Sugar. You know, be it a, a farm kid or an employee's kids or somebody that works at the gas station, their kids as well. Yeah, you know, I mean all everybody that is in our small communities uh, is affected by what we do and, and that means a lot to me. It hits me hard, and that importance of what we do is in my every decision I make. So, yeah, Michigan Sugar is uh, pretty important. It's pretty ingrained in your fabric, I'll tell you that. Tommy, I don't have any more questions for you. I think you've done a phenomenal job at, at kind of describing the role of you know your director and, and your passion for your people and your work. Like I said at, at the beginning, I, I just – I love who you are. I'm, I love that you're on our team, both from a professional and personal standpoint. We share a lot of things, and you know, I, I love working with you. I think you're a tremendous asset to Michigan Sugar Company. I wish you much, much success in years to come. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Jim. I, I appreciate you having me, and I appreciate your leadership. I appreciate what you've done for me, for my team, and even more so than that, than from Michigan Sugar as a whole. You're a huge part of Michigan Sugar, and I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Grounded. If you'd like to hear an episode on a specific topic, please email your ideas to grounded at michigansugar.com. Thanks for listening, and check back soon for another edition of Grounded. Grounded.